1: we about camp storylines with Notre Dame, a month out from fall camp, did offense yesterday, defense today. Number one, secondary, how good can they be? Because they have to be really good in some clutch games this year. Number two, the goddamn linebackers, because the production hasn't been there. What is it going to look like this year? Number three, before we bring Bruce Feldman in, second year of Al Golden, we heard how – much they learn, right? Al Golden has taught so much. These players learn so much from Al Golden, what he brings and how he teaches. All right, that's fine then That excuse is out the window. Second year for these defensive players and these youngsters in the system, they should play much faster. They should be more productive. Al Golden, what do you have? What's the second year look like? That's the third storyline going into this fall camp. We'll dig into that a little bit more. But without further ado, we want to bring our special guest into the Lucky Lefty podcast. You can catch him at The Athletic, doing a fantastic job of covering college football, if I do say so myself, this summer. You can catch him on Fox, Big Noon Kickoff coverage for Fox Sports. It's the one and only. Our guy, Bruce Feldman, he's with us on the Lucky Lefty podcast once again. Bruce, how are you doing this morning?
2: That's right. guys. Good to be on with you.
1: Always glad to have you join us. And, you know, Notre Dame fans pretty much have told us, make sure you ask Bruce these two questions, right? So the first question they want to know, and I'm interested, Bruce, because one of our storylines offensively yesterday was, who the hell is Jared Parker? Like, we just don't know. We don't know what this offense is going to look like. He comes from a lot of different styles. He's been in a lot of different styles of offense. Is it going to be your traditional Notre Dame offense, where it's run, tight ends, a little bit of passes to the special wide receivers? Or is he going to open it up with these young wide receivers that he has that are promising on the roster in the freshman sophomore class and then use the running backs a little more sparingly? And my question to you is, you guys rank tiers of the quarterbacks, and you have Sam Hartman in tier four. You said you gave a thought to him being in tier three. Would you have given him tier three if he was still in the same system at Wake Fours? and him coming into a situation with some unknowns? Did it give you a little bit of pause to say, you know what, let's just leave him in tier four? Cause Notre Dame, Notre Dame fans are like, how is he a tier four quarterback?
2: Well, let's, I do want to clear this part up. So a tier four quarterback, like Drake May, who a lot of people think, you know, it, it was basically Caleb Williams was in a class by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the question was, is Sam Hartman in the tier three cluster or in the tier f- four cluster to me? Um, Stu Mandel, who I work with and do the Audible podcast with, he took more issue with the number of interceptions. That wasn't Mm -hmm. as much of an issue to me because I thought he had really mastered the offense at Wake Forest, the slow mesh and all that it comes with that. Um, But I thought he was in that three to four range. And some of what you said, uh, you know, right now, you know, he committed – when Tommy Reese was running the offense, we, we know what Tommy Reese's offense looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really know what, what Jared Parker's offense can look like. Now I've talked to Neil Brown who worked, you know, who worked with him at West Virginia and some other guys, and he's a really well-regarded assistant coach, but we just really don't know. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of this is you'd mentioned young receiving core. I think that is, that is, a, is a question mark, at least at this point. It's an unknown. You know, yeah. from the people I know inside the Notre Dame program, I know that they expect big things from JD Price. He got hurt right before the start of last year. I know from, I've known Dylan Call for a long time. I know how excited he was about him going in. Like, I get it. You lose a really productive running back and ends up going to LSU. I think they'll be fine there. Pretty sure they're going to be fine on the offensive line. I do like the higher. That that Marcus made there because it was a guy he goes way back to in terms of working together when they were around each other at Ohio, Ohio State. It's you know it's the receiving core that look I think it'll be good I think it'll be better but you know they didn't even have a lot of bodies last year going into it so that's part of why um, you know when I looked at it and and Stu and I disagreed on this but I was like look Devin Leary had a, an amazing 2021 uh, season then gets hurt now he goes to Kentucky. I know what their offense looks like because I re- I saw what Liam Cohen did 2 years ago there. Um whereas this is a little more unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to see. I you know, I think Sam's really smart. I think he's very talented. Um I think it's a great addition for for Notre Dame, but you know, it's not like uh, you're saying to me, "Oh, he's going in and Garrett Riley is the OC" or he's going in and we know it. We don't we just don't know what it's going to look like.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, it is pretty interesting. It's it's exciting though at the same time because how that what we've seen in college football the last couple of years is that an experienced quarterback twenty six and up, sometimes twenty eight, usually makes a good appearance for a, a football team that's on the rise. Like we've seen it with Georgia being managed very well by Stetson Bennett. We've seen uh, older guys that especially like a Jack Cone, coming in as a as a bench player. To come to Notre Dame with just having the experience of being in college football and raising the level of Notre Dame to an 11-win team, I think there's something to Sam being as old as he is that you can kind of hang your hat on him being pretty successful in a in a in a better way that we're looking for moving forward this year.
2: Yeah, and he's super. He is super smart. You know, I know Dave Clawson really well and have talked to him a lot about the slow mesh uh, and all the concepts and all the. All that comes with that, I think people just look at it as like, oh, it's, you know, ride or die, decide forever. But it's a lot more that goes into it. And he really mastered it. And you look at some of the games, like, well, they went toe-to-toe with Clemson. They, You know, it's a hard team to to keep that defensive line at bay and some of the challenges that go with it. But he lit them up. He lit up a lot of teams that had, you know, and look, some of these defenses Notre Dame know, knows well because they're, for all intents and purposes, got a lot of ACC, you know, not roots, but a lot of ACC overlap to them. So I think he knows, and this is, you know, one of the things I heard about his process was like, I know a lot of these teams are going to play because I played them, you know? So I just think it's tricky when the the OC change happened when it did. Um, I'm very like one of the better subplots to me in college football this year is what is the Notre Dame offense look like? Because mm-hmm. it's an, it's largely an unknown. Again, you know, I go back to like I would not at all be surprised if if J.D. Price turns out to be a star. Right. Um, And we know they're going to be really good on the offensive line because, you know, they have a what we think will be a first round offensive line. You know, you know, they, they have some real big physical guys. It's just can they take the next big step? Right. Because, you know, even even when Ian Book was there, he was a really productive quarterback. And they did a lot of good things, but it was like, okay, they're good enough to be a playoff contender. Can they punch through to the next the next step? And that's a big step. Obviously, last year, you know, they really had to rebuild and come out of it. I think find their footing. And again, I, you know, I caught the beginning of what you guys are talking about with Al Golden. I do think, you know, there is there's some question marks about like okay how good can they be on that side of the ball right and so i think i think we're going to have to find out what their identity is in both places to be honest
1: That's Man, we can stop right there. Going into your second year, most coaches would like to have an established identity. I love, look, by the way, I love what you guys said when you were on Moody Sticks. And I thought it was very profound because a lot of people are not comfortable in their skin. And I will respect Jim Harbaugh for this. He is who he is. He he went to Stanford. He said, we're going to be the bully of Pac-12. He went to Michigan. He said, "Hey, we're going to come to bully of the Big Ten, and they practice to that. They recruit to that. He coaches to that, and you know what you get with Michigan. You can talk about all the other. Do they have enough speed, talent to beat Georgia and the big teams? I know one thing: they have enough. They have enough right now to dominate Ohio State back to back years, convincingly. So, and when you guys pointed that out, when you were talking about him and how much respect he deserves." I think about what you just said, identity and Marcus Freeman going into his second year as a head coach. I would want my second year to be about that identity being established. And as you just pointed out, there are some things offensively, offensively and defensively that you just don't know from an identity standpoint with this team. Do you see that being a problem or do you think they still have enough to kind of overcome that?
2: I don't see it as a problem. I just see it as, an, as really still an unknown because like taking a step back from this, you know, I remember getting to know Marcus a little bit when he was finishing up at Ohio state and what you had was a really charismatic guy who mm-hmm. in a lot of ways you could see him like, I think, I think Notre Dame, and I, I don't know how much he has embraced this or not, but like they have done a really good job of showcasing um, you know, you see him on social media, you see like he is a, a, um, you know, I could see how he would resonate with a lot of recruits in this day and age. Cause he's a, he is a younger, like he's like, there's never a bad photo of Mark, right? Oh, funny. When, when, um, when, when I worked on a story of that, he was one of the people involved with it at, at, uh, Ohio state. We had like four other players who were getting ready for the draft. And it was almost like a modeling shoot that you'd see from GQ. And I remember our photo editor was with us and she was like, you know, she was very impressed with with Marcus and just kind of like he got it, you know, kind of thing. And I think what is going to be interesting to see is, look, his college coach at Ohio State was one of the most successful college coaches of that era was really was terrific at at uh, at the lower divisions and goes to Ohio State and wins a national title early and he had an identity. Jim Tressel absolutely had an identity. Yeah. And so I think as Marcus gets here what is fascinating to me is whether you like it or not so much of what you are as a head coach at least in terms of how you transition is the person you follow he's following Brian Kelly. Now he worked with him for one year. That's not a long time, but Brian Kelly is a, you know, a 60, whatever, 63 year old guy from the Northeast who has a very specific kind of persona. And he's a really, he's a really good college football coach, no doubt about it. But I think, you know, sometimes you, you, you showcase what may be different because as much as it was successful, it wasn't getting them where they ultimately wanted to go. And Uh, You know, he's saying all that to get to this point. I think for Marcus, it is, he wasn't in, he wasn't in South Bend that long before he got this huge job. I think it is going to be totally a lot of on the, you know, learning on the job. And that's not a knock that happens to all first time head coaches, but I think it's especially going to happen at such a big job, right? It's not, it's not like just, he got a power five job. He got like the Cadillac of power by jobs. And um, you know, who does he lean on? Right. Now I know from everything I'd heard that you know his offensive line coach and he, their you know, their families kind of connected, I think, went, you know, years ago. And I think Al Golden can be a good asset to him because you know a lot of a lot of old coaches definitely respect Al Golden. Uh-huh. Um and I know a bunch of guys who wanted to hire him at certain points. And I think you know, he has been a head coach, obviously, and been a head coach at a high academic place on top of that, which is good. I think there are certain guys that that, that Marcus will will absolutely lean on. But ultimately, we're going to see his identity, you know, keep growing and going and where it gets to. Because I think his, his identity can be one thing in recruiting and how it can resonate. I absolutely think it will. But ultimately, it's like, you know, what we were talking about, Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh is sixty. And Jim Harbaugh had 15 years in the NFL and then he got to to San University of San Diego where nobody was paying attention to what he was doing. And then he got to Stanford where really nobody else was paying attention until he started, you know, kicking over chairs. And then all of a sudden I was like, OK, um, all <laughs> right, now we got him. Right. A bit. But so where is Marcus in that time frame? You know, I think I'm I'm. You know, I'm, I'd be optimistic based on what I know about him but it's probably going to take some more time because you're having a guy who's not just figuring out who he's going to be a head coach, but he's also doing that at a place and in a time of NIL and transfer portal and all this other stuff that it's different.
1: Bruce Feldman joins us right here on the lucky Duffy podcast. We transition to the future of the quarterback position at Notre Dame. And it's something that I think halfway through the season, I give Marcus Freeman a lot of credit for identifying This is not it. This quarterback room, this is not it. We have to correct this right now. And he knew, talked to the quarterbacks even before the season was over and said, look, we're going to the portal. I want to let both of you guys know we're upgrading here. But we talk about the Elite 11. In my opinion, Bruce, your article that you wrote about C.J. Carr where you raved about what you saw with this young man and compared him to being the best pure passer to probably hit Notre Dame. Since Jimmy Clausen, I think the surprise performance of Kenny Mitchie last year at the Elite 11 further bolsters that to have both of those young guys in the quarterback room and give a bright future to the quarterback room at Notre Dame.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So with this, the story that we ran yesterday at the Athletic on, on CJ and how he looked at the Elite 11. So right. I spent a couple days at the camp. It's, you know, it's pretty much in my backyard here in, in Southern California and did a story about my takeaways from it. And it was, I probably mentioned 10 quarterbacks and a couple other players who weren't quarterbacks who were, who were also there as receivers. And, you know, the story went up, I think on a Saturday. And I think I was away, you know, on a family trip with like my son's, soccer had a soccer tournament or something and so i didn't really look at the comments or anything mm-hmm. and i noticed on social media like one or two people had asked me about how did cj Carr look because he wasn't mentioned in the original story and i was like he was solid i thought he looked good and that was kind of it because i wasn't just really uh, i i wasn't in the comments of my story or whatever and then my editor was like hey if you can come back do you want to write more about cj Carr? because you got a ton of questions and people at notre dame not people at Notre Dame, Notre Dame fans were ticked off. Why did you not mention him? What was the whatever? And I was like, oh, okay. And the reason why was when I went there, um, Dylan Rayola was he's the number one ranked quarterback prospect in the country an overall prospect. And my it's the second time I've seen him in person. And he looked, you know, he's really impressive. He looks like a 25-year-old man. He almost looks like a 25-year-old linebacker. He's so- I told you
3: he's huge. I told you, Sean, he's huge. It's like – He is huge.
2: Big lower body. You know, he's almost 60. (laughs) Everything looks easy. You know, and look, Malik could speak to this better than me. But a lot of times at those settings, kids, and they're still kids, are trying to throw the ball so hard it's almost like they're squeezing the air out of it. Because, you Mm -hmm. know, they're around other – I don't know if it's other alphas or just other highly ranked guys. They know people are watching every little thing. It's not – you know, it's it's not necessarily like they're in the middle of they're not in a game setting. And what I noticed with him was he everything was easy for him and everything looked easy for him. Right. The other quarterback who really who really shined was Julian Sayan, who's from from down here. He's from Carlsbad, California. He's an Alabama commit who was highly regarded, but he was not close to a five star guy at that point. And you just watched him in the first couple of things you saw and you're like, whoa, he's very like everything was on point. Everything was in rhythm. Everything was, was like, he was attacking everything. It was like, he was like surgical in how he did it. And I remember up, this guy is going to become a five-star off of this. Like, you just, cause I know a lot of people are watching and it's the summer evaluation. And he ended up winning the MVP of the camp and of all the quarterbacks. And subsequently this morning, they did bump him up to five-star and he's now the number two ranked quarterback in the country behind. Rayola. And then there was like a handful of other guys who were like three star guys who were like, I don't even know who that guy is. And they're like, oh, that's Will Hammond. He's a three star. He's going to Texas Tech. And then you keep noticing them. And there was like probably five other guys who fit in that category. Um, so it's like the, the, the thing was basically about the top guys and then these other guys who maybe you didn't know is a guy a shorter quarterback who is a really good athlete from TCU um, a kid from Nebraska who I think was ranked in the thirties among quarterbacks who was really accurate, you know, and a, a kid who spent one year as a quarterback and had been a receiver before that he was committed to Florida state who, you know, you saw some flashes from him. It wasn't all great, but it was like, he was intriguing. So that was kind of the story. And then when my editor said that, I was like, oh, I can definitely write about CJ. Cause CJ was good, but it was like, he went in there as like the number three, uh, number three or number four quarterback, you know, ranked guy. So it wasn't like he kind of held serve to me. He wasn't as impressive as Julian Sand. But so I was like, well, let me talk to uh, let me talk to a bunch of the coaches who work at the Elite 11 and who are around them. And so that's what I did. And they were pretty glowing. I thought, you know, Devin Gardner, who's a Michigan guy, was a former five star quarterback once upon a time, too, had said, you know, look, I've known him since he was a little kid because he's Lloyd Carr's grandson. And. You know, I'm a Michigan guy, and he said I knew he had a baseball background, and there was a lot of stuff from the baseball thing, the training where you could see it, like, you know, even the, the off platform kind of Mahomes kind of slinging from all all angles. He said that's a lot of stuff that you're trying to work with quarterbacks now. He's got that. Mm. Um, he's really accurate. He goes. The one thing I thought I, you know, I talked to him about was Julian Sam came out here aggressive, and he was going for it, and he looked really confident, and he was just firing it, and he goes felt like he was a little reserved early on in the camp, this being CJ. And it was like, just get it, just go out, you know, like, and I think he, he's like that, you know, George Woodfield told me he saw him at their regional in Massillon, Ohio. And he goes, man, he was, everything was on target. And he was like that. And he goes, I, you know, people really like what they see on his film, just in the beginning of the camp, you know, the first day, I don't know if it was a little hesitant, but he wasn't quite as sharp, certainly as saying and some other guys, but, um, as, as people see in the story in The Athletic now, it's there's a lot to like, especially Quincy Avery, you know, who's now one of the guys who tra- helps train uh, Jalen Hurts obviously, and, you know, some other really big time quarterbacks in the NFL said, I loved maybe most about watching how the other people at the camp interacted with him and they gravitated around him. He goes, to me, that bodes well, because then you're, you see the leadership, you see that some of those intangible qualities that I think carry forward in college. And that is an absolute thing because I've covered the Elite 11 for two decades. And there are a handful of quarterbacks who come in there really hyped who almost like are a little aloof or whatnot. And some of those guys usually it follows through and you see it in college where maybe they're, they don't live up to the hype.
3: It's amazing because we read all the
1: publications and the stories, and we tried to be, as we reported about it, we tried to be even. You know, there were some ups and downs. People had different perspectives on his performance. And people got upset with us because we said, look, we didn't care where he placed. That wasn't our concern. We knew he was three, four, five in that range. And like you said, he held serve." He did what he was supposed to do. What we fell in love with were the intangibles when we heard him during this interview. And you can see the competitive nature when he says, yeah, well I'm out here with all these other guys, but we, we can play football in the Midwest. We can play football at Notre Dame. And I'm like, okay. Like it's something in him where he's ready to compete. He's ready to galvanize guys around him and get to the plate at a high level. And for me, that's what stood up, stood out the most. I'm like, yes, Notre Dame needs that. I can't wait to get that in that locker room. I could care less where you place. That's what we need, and like you talked about it, that's what stood out the entire time.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because the Elite Eleven has has changed a lot over twenty years. It it depending on when you were at it, or you know, sometimes I think it was more it was with less technology, you know. 15 years ago, certainly they didn't have like the breakaway data station like they do now. And that was the, you know, the first night you were watching guys they are hooked up to all these cameras and everything thrown around. Um, You know, like Dilfer brought his pro day uh, drill where it's basically almost like a two minute down the field. They have their rail shot challenge now, which they used to, you know, they, they had different kinds of things, but like back a little before Malik, but in that same Malik's, Time frame when he was a high schooler, you know, they would take him out to usually to Oregon, where Nike's back, you know, in Nike's backyard, and they would do these like team RWB, which is like you know old military guys who will put them through different kinds of challenges to maybe expose some of their character and and different things, but necessarily aren't really yeah, about (laughs) playing football, but they're way different, right? Like I can Way way different, right? And so what I remember the one year. And this might be, maybe it's a year, maybe these kids are a year older than you, Malik. Maybe they're the same. I don't remember. It was the Josh Rosen class. And oh, it was a bunch so, of yeah.
3: People. I was there as a counselor and we had to run through the woods. Or- okay, so-, so that was, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Oh. You will remember this. So this is about two hours from, it was, for them it was a two-hour bus ride from the Nike like headquarters, which is this gorgeous place in the middle of Oregon. And they went to this lake and they had all these things. And I just remember, like, Josh Rosen actually, you know, he grew up near the beach here. Like, he was handled it really well. Jarrett Stidham. Did, so, so Bryce Petty was with you, right?
3: Uh, I had, I had,
2: oh, 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 uh, The counselors. Was Bryce counselor Petty a counselor Bryce, that year?
3: Yeah, Bryce Petty, because he was, he did it. He did a real good job doing that. Time. Yeah, he
2: did a really good job. He was like a Navy SEAL. Bryce Petty is yeah, built was, like
3: a linebacker. And he's,
2: I think, you know, more of an outdoorsman. So, like, Bryce Penny is, like, lifting up, you know, like, pa- you know, sacks oh. of potatoes and whatever else they had doing, right? By himself. Like, By we're himself. all, like,
3: partnering and trying to use our brains together. Yeah, he's, sure. like,
2: Paul Bunyan out there, right? So, I, it's funny. I didn't re- – yeah. So, that year, but what I remembered, we're in, like, you know, it's, it's also, you know, it's Mosquito Haven or whatever. But at one point, I remember Quincy Avery and I were, like, going towards the lake. And all of a sudden it was like, I don't know what these things were. It was like, we each got stung like five times by some like a locusts or or something. It was just, but the point of this long story is you'd get um, a bunch of quarterbacks. Maybe they weren't raised in anything like this outdoor setting. So you're throwing them in a completely different environment. I, I forgot who it was. It might've been one of the DeAndre's who was a Florida kid. It might've been DeAndre Johnson or DeAndre. Francois I forget which one of those kids I think had never been near the ocean or never been you know was wasn't a swimmer and so I think you're putting them in really you know I think one of the days though you know like they've done a bunch of stuff where it's like you're in the ocean or this well certain kids are really comfortable swimming certain people aren't you know and and it's just a like they don't they didn't do that this year they don't do some of that they may have taken them to do hot yoga but so you know all of that to say you know, they're, it's not like they're in shoulder, you know, in their pads and they're not being rushed and they're trying to put them in uncomfortable environments. But at the same point, it's still largely a camp in in shorts and T-shirts throwing to receivers who usually aren't your receivers.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and that's and I think that's so. What is your what is your opinion of the DJ Langway situation? Everybody was saying he was nine for seventeen in the red zone, but the caveat was that the receivers were washed and they were the last ones of the day. How much does that play into the narrative of you know trying to turn DJ Langway into a five star? You know,
2: it's a good question. You know, you watched him; he's a big, strong man. He you know like the release i think was something i remember asking some of the coaches about it cuz you notice it. it's like his front his left leg it's almost like he's throwing like in front of a wall where it's like it it doesn't seem quite um n- quite natural and then i i think uh, some of the guys said you know that's something that they're going to have to you know keep refining with him there was a lot of stuff you'd see you really liked um and also i think part of it is you know, in a game setting, I think he's going to probably shine as opposed to in this setting. Again, different receivers, more static. Um, the one thing that I noticed at one point that, that, that I was talking to one of the coaches and we both kind of picked up on it. You're not out there with a helmet on. And so you see facial expressions. And I remember in seven and seven, I think he threw a pick and you could almost feel like the look on his face of like, you know, he kind of was wearing it because, you know, how do you respond to it? And I don't think I w- I wouldn't try to read that much into oh he's not going to be a terrific college quarterback because in the at the end of the day as a playmaker you can see it but you really can't see it right you know I don't know what Cam Newton would have looked like if he was in those drills I know what he looked like at Auburn though right so
3: yeah, like at Auburn
2: <laughs> and, and That's like so-
3: Anthony Richardson Anthony Richardson was right there with Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence during that time and nobody really you know, had too much to say about him. And then he turns out to be the fifth pick of the draft. So,
2: yeah. And look, the, the guy who led the Eagles to the Super Bowl, I mean, like I, and I've seen him as a counselor at lead 11. He shines when he's in front of people. Like he's got a ton of presence to him. When he was 19, he was like, he was 30, you know, but I'm not sure how great he would have looked at times in those, in some of that. Like, I think he would have, you know, he's got plenty of arm, but, you know, there are certain guys who are just like, everything looks really accurate. And I, I do think, and I catch myself on this. And I mentioned this in the CJ car story um, where you remember the wow throw, or you remember the really bad throw. You're like, Ooh, that was, and I was like, I'm not seeing, there's 20 quarterbacks out there and they're going at different times. And, and a lot of times they're going in different places. Like there was an accuracy challenge. It was on a different field. And so, you know, I can't, I, I don't even know how many throws they probably make over three days. I mean, it's probably, and you know, I don't know if it's a thousand, it's probably over 500, um, or somewhere in that range, but you don't see all of them. You can't, unless you're like following just one kid everywhere along the way. So, you know, what I try to remind myself and I don't, I don't always do it, you know, is just take a lot of this with a grain of salt, because you may have seen the greatest throw ever. And that may be the greatest throw they ever made. And they don't replicate that much. Or you may have seen one of the, you know, like, I don't know for what reason the kid didn't have a good grip on the ball or maybe the receiver just, you know, got out of his break really slow and it, it, you know, messed up the timing or whatever. And it looks really bad because it's always we're judging the quarterback. We're not judging the guy he's throwing to. And so I think that's the part where it's like, okay, let's pump the brakes a, a little on all this.
1: Once again, Bruce Feldman, The Athletic, joins us right here. Let's have some fun, Bruce. Man, when you were on with Bucky Brooks and Daniel Jeremiah, that was one of the most enjoyable podcasts that I've listened to. Uh, The college football draft was absolutely amazing. And I thought it was interesting because I appreciate the fact that you guys went the direction you decided to go with your picks, because it flew in the face of the two defensive guys that are ruling college football right now. Like, it would be easy to take Kirby, Nick. But the direction you guys went, especially what you said uh, about the number one pick, Lincoln Riley. And and Malik has been like – Malik said it yesterday during the show. He's like, Lincoln Riley can walk into a quarterback's house and say, look, heisman 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 nfl nfl and it's like what else do you say if you're a quarterback other than okay yeah i want to go play and learn under you so with him being that first pick i think the only guy that i really had a took issue with and i think bucky brooks brought it up because he was really impressed with the job that james franklin did at vanderbilt which was a good job in my opinion I think there were pl- there's been plenty of opportunities for Penn State to take that next step and they haven't. And I don't know, James Franklin just wouldn't be in my top five. But I think the direction you guys went with the top five was actually excellent.
2: Thanks. It's it, you know, look, it's subjective. <laughs> you know, it's funny because it was also DJ put us on the spot. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Bucky didn't know and I definitely didn't know. And so on my last pick, you know, I thought I went with and whatever we had, fifteen guys after Saban and Kirby, or twelve guys. So, uh, so it's fourteen guys in general. And I was like, yeah, I went with Chris Kleiman from K State, who I definitely think is a really good coach. But when afterwards I went back and looked at my top twenty-five rankings for the for the coaches rankings we do at the Athletic, and I actually had Lance Leipold from Kansas ranked mm. above. Him, and. I probably, you know, in retrospect, I'd take a mulligan and probably put uh, uh, Lance Leipold maybe a tick above him just because, you know, the guy won a bunch of national titles at D3, then goes to Buffalo where they have never been very good, got him in the top 25, then goes to Kansas where they have been the worst program in power five, and he got him into the top 25 and got him respectable and got him to a bowl game really in a short amount of time which is amazing, you know, uh, so it's, you know, it's tricky because you, you sometimes you outsmart yourself in the moment. Um, and maybe I did a little there, but um, it's, a, it's a fun exercise to have.
1: Did you feel like just in the conversation, it seemed like you guys, it, it just seemed like Dabo just kept sliding down the board. He was like that one highly thought of guy in the NBA draft that you look at all the measurables and you're like, this kid is really good. And you look up, it's on pick six or seven. You're like, he's still on the board? Like, what's wrong? And it's like, Davo, he's through Timmy. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So do you think the job that Dabble, how do you think he's viewed by most people? Right? Do you think he just caught, do people think he caught lightning in a bottle, had two great quarterbacks? Or do they just look at his totality and say, yo, he's a really good college footballer?
2: He is a really good. I mean, you don't win national titles. It's hard to win national titles, and especially to win more than one. Mm-hmm. So I give him a ton of credit for that. I think he's a you know he is the CEO culture setter. Um, I give him credit for bringing Brent Venables in, who is a really good play caller on the defensive side of the ball, and he got them significantly better. Um, he 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 really created and remade Clemson because Clemson. Long before, I mean, I'm older than you guys, but even really before I was anywhere close to working in college sports, you know, Clemson had a national title, but it had been a long time Mm -hmm. and he resurrected that program. So he deserves a ton of credit, I think, where in the way that DJ had kind of couched the 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 framework of the conversation of like, if you were building this program or whatever, like. There's some things like Dabo has not been very involved at all, more so than or less so than any other okay. power five coach I can think of in the transfer portal piece of this. And that is a very big deal. Like, so I think he's held to certain things. I do like that he, he hit the reset button to go. He knew he had a problem with his offense had grown stale, and he grabbed Garrett Riley, Lincoln Riley's brother from TCU. And I think that was a bold move, and I think it was a smart move. Short of that, I feel like this program has, feels like it's been losing momentum. So we'll see how Garrett does, and we'll see if he can pump new life into, into Clemson. You know, it's not like they were bad. They won 21 games the last two years, but they've definitely taken a step back from where they were before that, but they were at the mountaintop before. So, you know, interesting times is, you know, there. And certainly with like AC, with FSU and the ACC, you know, I feel like Mike Norvell has gained on them, but I, he certainly hasn't overtaken them. We'll see. Is this the year with Jordan Travis that they do? Yeah, I don't know.
1: It's interesting because I remember last year when you talked to us, you said the difference between Notre Dame and the top 10, the top teams are really outside at the skill positions, right? And, of course, they need a quarterback skill positions. And I think Garrett Riley may be able to reignite, what which was a pretty good – Man, skill position and wide receiver—you look Great at the NFL. Receiver. Think of those
2: yeah. guys. I mean, they're you know like they're big athlete. I mean, you know, go way back to DeAndre Hopkins. I don't even mm-hmm. know way back, but you know, whether it's Hunter Renfro. I mean, there was there was a bunch of playmakers out there. You know, mm-hmm. Higgins. I mean, there's guys who were shining in the NFL. Yeah, but it dried up to the point where they had a bunch of big receivers who, who were big recruits who I don't think lived up to what quite what the hype was now how much was that was the system got stale how much was that where maybe there wasn't the same chemistry with with uh dj Uangalele as there certainly was with with deshaun watson or trevor lawrence or even before that like people forget how good of a college quarterback taj boyd was so um you know I i think it's recapturing all of that but no doubt like if you put you know, half of the group of receivers that Clemson had in that decade, you know, previously, um, you know, in South Bend, you know, maybe Notre Dame is a national title team.
1: Mm. One question before we let you go, Bruce. I don't know if you're a bedman man or not, but Sam Hartman produced six 1,000-yard receivers at Wake Forest. This is Notre Dame. Can he produce one at Notre Dame this year? That's a question. If I if you if I sent you to Vegas, if I sent you to Vegas with my
2: money to place the bet, so before I do this, you play the odds maker and give me who would mm -hmm. be the 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 two favorites to do this, and it can't be a tight end.
1: I would put. I would say the two favorites would be Jaden Thomas and Tobias Merriweather, and I would have probably one of the freshmen as a dark horse at about let's say I will put the odds for Tobias Merriweather at about seven to one
2: I will I will put this for for Chancey Stucky out there that they will have they will have a better chance of one of those two guys averaging 20 yards a catch hmm. which I right. think you know is like and it all starts to blur together but Will Fuller is around um, Malik. How far back? When, when did he, you know, get there? It's about 10 years ago.
3: Yes. About 10 years ago. We haven't had a Will Fuller since 10 years no, ago. I know.
2: That's the point. Like, that's yeah. the, you know, like, yeah, he was a big play. Like, he's, he's the guy that a bunch of these other programs have. Now, he's not all they have, but he is that guy. And – That's what I feel like they got to – I don't – you know, you got to recruit Will Fuller. You you know, it's hard to develop that. I'm not saying you don't, you know, develop it, but, like, to be that explosive, you know, those are – because I feel like they have some of those explosive athletes. They're, you know, in a different way, they're an edge rusher or, you know, Cam Hart is certainly a super explosive uh, defensive back and athlete. Um, But I feel like that's the one – if you can get a guy who can average 20 yards a catch and also maybe you know he doesn't have to have he doesn't have to be a thousand yard receiver but if he's you know 40 catches for 850 yards that is opening everything else up to me Mm.
1: you know what he's just set the new bar left we might have to set it at 850 and say okay they get a guy 850 one of these youngsters will cook it with grease at the wide receiver position once again go follow bruce feldman on social media you can see him each and every day dropping knowledge over the summer in college football and recruiting at the Athletic and then catch him during the season, man. Fox Sports, big noon kickoff show and sidelines, for all the big games. I, Bruce, look, we forgot this. There is one, one issue that Malik and I have. Because Malik, Malik calls him Mr. Third Base, and that's Ryan Day. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan, they got a lot of love from you guys on that podcast. And Malik was like, "Nah." And I'm telling you, man, if he gets pounded by Jim Harbaugh one more time, how, how do you think that eventually plays out?
2: Not well for him because <laughs> the crazy thing with that is he was a, you know, a field goal away from probably winning the national title. Mm. They had Georgia on the ropes. They're feeling you didn't make the kick. I think they would have smashed TCU. I mean, they are, they are built to beat anybody. The problem is there's another program that is built solely to beat them. And mm. I got to admit, like one of, I don't know, I've covered college football for 25 plus years as and it's, I you know, the recency bias thing is a real thing, but the most, one of the most Mind-blowing, mind-opening, whatever things that I can remember was last November, being in Columbus, being on the sideline late in the game, it was a TV timeout, and I was like just trying to help Tom Rinaldi out, who was doing the sideline in the broadcast, and I said, Tom, we were on the Michigan sideline, I said, turn around, and you looked at the entire front row in Columbus, and it was people of all ages, I mean, like there were little kids that were grandmas. And they all looked like they were in disbelief. They all looked like they were they were angry and hurt. It was just like it was an amazing scene because I don't think there was anybody in that building other than the 120 people who are on the Ohio on the Michigan sideline who are like, um, "We're going to kick their butts." There's no doubt about. We're getting revenge, and the Michigan guys took it to them so badly, especially in the second half. And it's mind-blowing because there was no Blake Corum. And before the game, Donovan Edwards, who, who torched them, he's had a cast on his hand. And you're like, how much can they get out of him? And so I think all of that is put on – is certainly put on, on Ryan Day. Fair or unfair, that's the job, right? The guy you followed who still kind of lingers around. His son uh, in laws on the staff. And um, Urban Meyer, as famously will say, I was 7-0 against that other school. Um, and now if you, if you lose three in a row, I don't know what they would do because to me, it's like a different deal than what's going on with Jimbo Fisher, where they'd have to pay him like $90 million and Jimbo has had a long time. Ryan day has been like wildly successful. If you look at his record, it's just the last two games against the team. You know, he could, what's nuts. I, I think is. Let's say they did make the field goal and they did win the national title, but then he lost, you know, 45 to 21. I bet you there'd still be a big chunk of fans. You'd be like, yeah, he can't beat Michigan though. And national title or not, I think they would be like, yeah, he's winning with urban's players or he's whatever. It's, it's, it's a unique problem. It's, it's a problem. I think a lot of coaches wish they could have, I mean, (laughs) you know, but, it's, it's interesting because at the same time, you know, like Urban was, you know, had losses to like mediocre Purdue and Iowa where, you know, it's like he he dominated Michigan, but then he would, you know, they would stub their toes. You know, it's hard to stay perfect in all this. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I still think he's I still think Ryan Day is, is an excellent coach. Um, but that's the circle it in red and green and every other color for this season just because of what's happened the last two years.
1: Yeah, college football, especially in coaching, perception is reality, right? You just explained it perfectly. Look, the perception, you can say what you want to say. They beat Clemson. Marcus Freeman turned things around. Notre Dame fans are not going to forget Marshall and Stanford. They just It's just stuck there. Like, everything got better. They win the game of bowl. And fans are still stuck with Marshall and Stanford. Not realizing that hey, Brian Kelly was eight and five his first two seasons. Marcus Reim was nine and four. So, like you said, it's going to be a tall task, patient, develop the identity, and get players outside that can make plays and hopefully Notre Dame. They can get to the national championship and make some hay and get off of this 35-year skid that we hear about in the chat every day that we do a show. It's been 35 years. Hopefully that can come to an end soon. Bruce Feldman, CFB on Twitter. Go follow him. One of the best writers and one of the big, big proponents of the Lucky Lefty podcast. Even anytime we can get him on Wealth and Knowledge. Bruce, we appreciate you getting up early with us. Man, enjoy the rest of your week. And man, can't wait. It's almost, what, under 60 days to open kick kickoff?
2: Yeah, we got media days coming up in like two weeks. And that, to me, that's yeah. like an official sign of training camp is, is about to be here. So it's a great time of year. I used to, um, as a little kid, I used I used to kind of have bittersweet feelings about about August and September because I knew football was about to start, but I also knew school was about to start. And I hated school, but I don't have to go to class anymore. And I'd still get <laughs> football, So that's okay.
1: That's Bruce Feldman right here on the Lucky Nothing podcast. Thank you so much for giving us time today, Bruce.
2: Appreciate you guys. Thank you.
1: Once again, the great Bruce Feldman joins us today. Follow him right now. Bruce Feldman, CFB, on social media. Hey, bro. Great content. Sam Hartman, CJ Carr, Marcus Freeman, Identity. He gave us a lot, left. He gave us a lot.
3: He definitely did. And you always can appreciate so much that insider knowledge and drop drop a couple of gems on the perspective that we've been trying to expand on, especially when it comes to the to the fortune telling of what we want some of these quarterbacks to look like. And, and and you know, for the fans to know that we're just not gassing this up <coughs> as Notre Dame fans. We got people out there that's really seeing it from the bigger perspective and 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 noticing. Mm-hmm that Notre Dame is making the right steps to having an offense and having a team that is 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 looking to be more respectable on the national stage.